God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will fear not, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters foam, roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of the city. It shall not be moved. God will help it when the morning dawns. The nations rage, dominions totter. God speaks, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Israel is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has brought desolations on the earth, who makes wars cease to the end of the earth, who breaks the bow, shatters the spear, and burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Israel is our refuge. It's a little more than 20 years ago now that my husband came home from work one day with a stunned look on his face. He announced that the counseling center where he worked had voted that day to shut its doors within 30 days. Both of us were a bit panicked by this news. Already it seemed like our expenses seemed to stretch often beyond our income. How would we possibly navigate this? But you know how it is when you have little kids. We carried on for the evening. We made dinner, read bedtime stories, did another load of laundry so that our son's soccer uniform would be clean and fresh for the morning. And then at breakfast the next day, we sat down in the dining room with a bowl of scrambled eggs between us, and I reached over to grab the Bible because it was, at that time, our custom to read a psalm while we were eating breakfast. And I opened it up to see what was the next psalm, and it was the one that you just read responsibly with Joe, Psalm 46. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. And I couldn't finish the psalm. I looked at Dave. He looked at me. We both welled up in tears. And from that day forward, Psalm 46 has been on my list of greatest hits in the Bible. I've read it so many times when no other word seemed to do. I've read it in hospitals at the bedside of a patient who just received bad news from the doctor. We've heard it preached so many times. Billy Graham preached on this text at the Washington National Cathedral in the days following 9-11. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. The psalm comforts us when we're facing a personal crisis like cancer or divorce. And the psalm reads like a soothing balm when we see on our television screens a natural disaster, a war, or a hurricane. Anne Lamont wrote this little book called Help Thanks Wow the three essential prayers, and she points out in that little book that sometimes the best prayers, the most honest prayers, the simple prayers, those are the most meaningful prayers. Sometimes the best prayer is simply help 
It's the prayer that we pray on the way to the emergency room at two in the morning when a loved one is sitting next to us in the car saying, hurry. It's the prayer that we pray in the middle of the night when we can't sleep and all we do is toss and turn, trying to come up with a solution to a thorny situation. It's the prayer surely on the lips of our brothers and sisters this morning in Israel, in Palestine, in Ukraine, and Russia. It is the prayer of a homeless mother not too far from where we sit now on the streets of Kansas City. It is the prayer of the refugee arriving in a foreign land seeking hope. It is the prayer, I suspect, of every physician at Children's Mercy Hospital sitting down to speak with a parent about their child's medical condition. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. But is God more than a spiritual defibrillator to call on in times of personal and national crisis? And how is it that this God actually helps? Christian Wyman is a professor of poetry. He was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer in his late 30s. The doctor explained that this cancer would keep him from ever reaching old age. This terminal diagnosis caused Christian Wyman to re-examine his faith. Already he had drifted far away from his childhood faith, from the West Texas faith of his grandparents and his parents who had raised him in a more fundamentalist atmosphere. But something within him at this particular life moment hungered for God. And he and his wife found themselves back in a faith community, in a church. This summer, I read one of Wyman's essays, and there was a line in his work that stopped me in my tracks. He writes, If God is not in the very fabric of existence for you, if you do not find God or or miss God in the details of your daily life, then your religion is just one more way to commit spiritual suicide. Whoa. You want to hear that again? If God is not in the very fabric of existence for you, if you do not find God or miss God in the details of your daily life, then religion is just one more way to commit spiritual suicide. I had never heard anyone use the phrase spiritual suicide. It stunned me, and how often I feel that way, that we ignore God as long as life is going along well for us. And then trouble comes and snap, we want God to fix it for us right now. I wonder if the psalmist who wrote, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble, was also calling upon all of us to wake up to how it is that God can actually help. The psalm reminds us that there are two big categories of problems problems that can seem like there is no help at all for them. There are problems of nature, and there are problems of people. For the problems of nature, the psalmist sings, the waters roar, the mountains tremble, 
And you and I might picture that earthquake in Turkey or the tornadoes ripping through the center of Joplin or the hurricane taking out a whole coastline in Florida. Who is a match for that kind of natural destruction? For the problems related to people, the psalmist sings, using the same verbs as before but different nouns, the nations are in an uproar, the kingdoms totter, tremble, and we picture Jerusalem, the holy city in rubble, and we picture the bombs in Ukraine and Gaza smoldering where homes and playgrounds and schools had been. Or we picture the agony of addiction here amongst our own loved ones, or the despair of unresolved family conflicts. The psalmist proclaims there is in the midst of all this trouble, a river whose streams make glad the city of God. But what is this river? The psalmist sings a song about Jerusalem, the holy city. And I've been there with Mike and David. There's no river in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a desert climate. I remember sitting day after day on that bus through the Holy Land, looking out and thinking, what a parched and dry land. Where is this gladness? Where is this land of milk and honey? Where is the stream that flows through the people who are facing so much despair? Now, what we do know about the geography of Jerusalem, there is no river, but there is an underground spring bubbling up and flowing into a fountain in nearby Shiloh to feed the people fresh water. Author and social commentator David Brooks tells about the time that he traveled across the United States doing research for a book. He asked people that he met along the way, when have you truly been seen? Many times the answers were not the extraordinary moments in life, but just the simple, ordinary moments. One lady was the director of a homeless shelter. It was the beginning of COVID, and she was exhausted from trying to figure out how to care for the houseless in this COVID climate. And she came home, and she sat down next to her husband on the sofa, and he looked at her, and he said, here are the six household chores that I am going to do for the next several months. And she felt so understood. He knew exactly what she needed. You see, God sends people into our lives so that we will remember this river of gladness that keeps flowing through us no matter what. Sometimes we can't even see the river. It's more like an underground spring bubbling up, a spring full of flowing love that is invisible to everyone else, but so powerfully comforting to us. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Now, I want you to notice what the Bible doesn't say here. It does not say that God will insulate us from calamity so that we will never face cancer or a car wreck or divorce or being downsized out of a job. God is not a refuge from the world. God is a refuge in the world. God does not promise us a place where nothing bad ever happens. God promises a presence in the midst of whatever happens. 
God really only makes one promise to us here, to be with us. Whatever we are going through, God will be with us. Three times the promise is repeated in the psalm. God will be with us. God's compassion, God's comfort, God's strength will rise up within us like an underground spring, which no one can see, but everyone can feel flowing through us. Do you ever forget that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God? Do we ever commit spiritual suicide by forgetting that there is indeed an energy, a love, a power of God's holy presence flowing through us even in the midst of our troubles? The psalmist has a line. It looks so good in needlepoint or on a notepad or on a little framed plaque. Be still and know that I am God. But in Hebrew, it reads differently, maybe in such a way that you wouldn't want to needlepoint it. In Hebrew, it reads, desist. Realize that I am God. It's an image of relaxing one's grip on the weapon. Let go. God is here in the midst of all of this with us. This past summer, I spent two weeks volunteering in East Africa, in Tanzania. I was working alongside our global mission partners there, and I learned that the average income in Tanzania is $500 a month, although the people I was working alongside of, the physical therapists, the nurses, the social workers, the case workers, they were all earning $200 a month. The whole time I was in Tanzania, I only met one person who owned a car. Everyone else either took the bus or walked to work. And after my two weeks of volunteering were complete, I was encouraged to go on a two-day safari at one of the nearby game parks. Well, since I was traveling alone, they assigned me to a group of other solo travelers, and we spent two days together inside a Range Rover, driving through the game parks with the lions and the elephants and the zebras. And I really enjoyed meeting some of my traveling companions, the other solo travelers from Kenya and Italy and Hungary and Taiwan. But there was this one traveler who... I don't know if she lacked adequate social skills or if she was just delusional enough to believe that she was actually on a private tour. Our safari guide was fabulous. He had been driving guests through these game parks for years and he knew exactly where to find the animals. He was in constant contact with the other game drivers in the park and he knew how to get us up close to see the animals. And he would say something like, is the group ready for lunch? And this one person would say, let's skip lunch. And then he would say to the group, has everyone gotten enough photographs of the giraffes? And we would all say, oh, yeah, 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 you can go on. And she would say, need three more minutes. Well, I couldn't figure this out. And by the end of the day, after spending what 
with, I think, about 10 hours on this inside this Range Rover, along with this very cantankerous traveler who was arguing with our game driver at every turn. I, I frankly ran out of patience, but not the game driver. He was so kind to every single traveler, including the cantankerous one. He treated her with respect and dignity. He patiently listened to her request and tried to figure out how to honor her wishes. And that night, after everyone dispersed, I talked privately with our guide and I said, you are the most patient man. I don't know how you remain so calm and so kind. I said, I couldn't re maintain my composure like that if I was in your position. I, I mean, seriously, that lady would have caused me to snap. And he smiled, he crossed his arms, he shook his head, and he said, she's fine, she's all right. And then he said, no one can take away my joy. Well, it's been three months since he said that to me, and that phrase just keeps going through my head. No one can take away my joy. I knew that our driver was miles and miles and miles away from his wife and his daughters. I don't know how much money he was earning, but I know it wasn't much because I know from private conversations with him that he often struggled to pay his daughter's school fees. And here he was, driving the same route with all these tourists, each with their own special needs, one who wasn't very kind or patient. And what he says at the end of a long day, no one can take away my joy. Because you see, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. No matter what happens, God is with us.